Welcome all you weirdos, Krakoans, and everyone who attaches a Darth Vader breathing apparatus to your face every night before going to sleep. I am Sith Lord Jason, and joining me from the hive of scum and villainy known as the Pacific Northwest is my Padawan Ruben. Ruben, search your feelings. How are you today? Uh, miserable. Miserable? Oh my goodness. <laughs> Why are you miserable? Did your, your soccer slash football team not score enough points? Correct. Yeah, oh, no. that happened. And I'm also getting ready for a business trip, which I'm not. I'm kind of a homebody, so the idea of uh, hitting the road from work is always daunting. Uh, oh well. Uh, well, I, I you'll be back in time to do our our thing next week, though, right? Or will you be broadcasting from on the road? That'll be exciting. Oh no, it's just um, see, it's a Wednesday to Sunday trip, so I will be back. Wonderful. Yeah, as uh, as I kind of hinted at there in the intro, I have just started my CPAP treatment. Which is the what is it? Uh, positive airway pressure. Basically, it, it forces air down my throat while I'm sleeping, so I don't snore so much. Uh, and well, I've only done it two nights, and we'll see how it goes. But so far, so good, I guess. It's a little annoying, and again, I don't really like feeling like I'm Darth Vader when I go to bed. But hey, if it if it means I don't feel sleepy every day at 5 p.m., I guess it's a good thing. Yes, yeah, that sounds great. I might end up getting something like that in the future. Well, I will, uh, maybe we'll have this podcast be like half about soccer and half about CPAP machines, and that'll bring in all the big advertisers. Wonderful. So until we transition to that new format, we are going to, at least for this week, continue talking about X-Men comic books. Uh, we will be talking about X-Men number 20, which is the second part of the Lord of the Brood storyline. And we'll be talking about Nightcrawler's number two in which we visit the year 100 section of Sins of Sinister for the first time. Now, I don't have any real news news this week. There is a, a newly released solicit that promises the return in June of a character who has been away for a bit, but that's more of a spoiler than news. So, hey, if you want to know who that is, you can Google June X-Men solicits and, and you'll see who's coming back. Other than that, we'll, we'll see him when he shows up or her. I don't want to, you know. I don't want to give any clues at all there for those dodging the spoilers. You spoil a bit. <laughs> okay, so for our part, avoiding spoilers, at least, well, avoiding spoilers for future books, we're going to spoil the hell out of these two books. We're going to head right into X-Men number 20, Lord of the Brood, written by Jerry Duggan, art by Stefano Caselli, colors by Federico Blee, letters by Clayton Cowell, design by Tom Muller, with Jay Bowen. Now, it strikes me, Ruben, that both these issues we're talking about today are ones that I covered solo last time when, when you were away. So I don't really know how you're feeling about these these storylines. What do you what do you think of this this brood story so far? Um underwhelming. Underwhelming. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I I don't know. I guess I might not be a fan of the brood. That could be it. It's a coherent and clear story, but um doesn't interest me that much. Now, the Brood are, I mean, they are just about the clearest direct ripoff of aliens that you could possibly get. So, I mean, they are, they are scary looking, but it's hard to look at them without thinking, yeah, that those first two movies were really good, and now they're here in X-Men. But, I mean, they're all right. And they, uh, Duggan's doing some interesting things in this issue. I don't know that I, everything he tries works, but I kind of like that he's trying some things. So, this yeah. issue takes place in four different settings. Uh, a brood-infested space rock, Mars slash Arako, Nowhere, that's Nowhere with a K or Knowhere, and a little bit on Krakoa itself. So that's that's how I'm going to break down this discussion, just by location. I'm going to start off on that brood-infested space rock, which now is being called Refugee Rock. Okay, 
Uh, we have our team there, Firestar, Iceman, Old Lady Wolverine, who's now going by Talon, I guess, and Old Man Sink, who's just going by Sink. He, uh, they, they heard some generic aliens onto a generic spaceship. I'm not sure. I thought this, the Star Jammer ship itself was supposed to be there. I, I would think that if they are going onto the Star Jammer, they would mention the Star Jammer, but they're on some kind of spaceship and they escape at the last second. Now, there's a pretty decent bit you know, action sequence where it looks like Iceman is bravely staying behind to let everyone else escape, but a little bit of his, like, Iceman slush blows back aboard the ship, and then he, I think he transfers his consciousness to that little piece of his ice? Is that a thing he does? I haven't seen that before. Yeah, so I have seen him basically get reduced to water vapor and then okay. be kind of brought back. So he can do this kind of thing. Okay. I mean, he is, we're told he's an Omega, so he can do kind of whatever he wants. But it was a little, it was a little odd. It felt like uh, Clayface. <laughs> <laughs> kind of Clayface, yeah. yeah. Or like uh, uh, the monkey prince who can make little clones of himself. Something like that. Because, yeah, it's, it seemed like really useful. Like you would infiltrate an Orcus base or the Orcus 4 just by, I don't know, a couple ice crystals and then be in that part of you. That seems kind of cool. Uh, Okay, but they, they do that, and so they they fly out of there. And don't worry, though, because I'm sure there's no reason at all to suspect that any of these generic aliens who were rescued from a brood-infested planet, none of them have been brood-infested themselves, so don't even bother checking. It would be a waste of time. So just just ignore that possibility. That might be no. what irks me the most about this, is this is not their first radio with the brood. It's like, we've seen these tricks before. It's like, seriously, you should have a pretty good protocol when dealing with a brood. Yeah, maybe maybe Firestar probably hasn't, but Iceman and uh, Wolverine and Sink, they've, they've seen some stuff. They, they should have thought of this. I know they've been through a rough time, but come on, guys. All right, Mark, moving onward. Now we're on Mars. And last time we saw that Gene and Magic had been given the task of tracking down broods who's the king of the brood because he ate that king egg way back when Hickman, Hickman was, was writing New Mutants. And they want to find out, hey, if you're the king of the brood, why are your loyal monsters out there trying to kill nice people like Vulcan's dad? Uh, they, they find King Brood chilling out in a hammock on a very stereotypical island paradise, which I guess if I were a king of anything, that's probably where I'd hang out. Uh, but the, the whole scene plays out in this kind of oddly comic tone that doesn't mesh at all for me with the idea of like a, a, a horror story like The Brood. Did, I mean, just the way that magic is drawn with her goofy derp face and talking about, oh, he has these skills. He can make The Brood do whatever they want. He can make them do the dance from the Thriller video. Like, there's a, a topical reference for you, huh? Old people's music videos. But yeah, Brood, Brood says, yeah, don't worry about it. I don't know what you think you saw, but I'm in control here. I'm in charge here. I only let them kill bad people, you know, slavers and whatnot. He does mention that he's been experiencing some nightmares lately. And at this point, Jean decides to non-consensually read Brew's mind, which I didn't think she did that anymore, but maybe if they're not on Krakoa, it doesn't count. Uh, yeah, she discovers in his mind, Nightmare. That's capital N Nightmare, the Doctor Strange villain whom Jean fought and very, very easily overcame back in issue four of this same volume, which that's kind of cool in the sense, and it's kind of not in another sense. Well, I'll let, I'll let you tell me first. What did you think of Nightmare being 
kind of the big bad in this whole arc. This is, I think, where it started to fall apart for me. Okay. And it, it could have worked. I just, it just one of those things that was seeded so long ago and there was nothing to lead you to believe that something was going on. Okay. And then it just, and then it just pops back up. Oh yeah. By the way, I've been bouncing around in everyone's dreams forever until this issue. It's like, okay. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I don't know. It's not a character I'm super familiar with. So it wasn't really like a wow, he's back kind of thing. And when I read that, I mean, it's cool that you're saying he's a doctor. Strange feeling because I had no idea where he came from in issue four, and I felt like that was just a throwaway issue. Um, his plan, I guess, is interesting, but I don't know. It just it doesn't work for me. It just, just yeah, so doesn't. I'll, work I'll tell you what I like about it first. I, I like that we're calling back to things that seem to be just throwaway issue, you know, throwaway issues, throwaway storylines. Uh, so that that's kind of cool. I I like that we've had like multiple storylines bubbling along, and we'll get to some more of those later. He doesn't feel like he fits with what I, at least what I thought was going on in X Men. He's just a very different kind of a character, right? It's it's like uh, you know you're, you're having a a, a Freddy Krueger story going along, and then suddenly some some goofy Yogi Bear steps in. Like it just doesn't it doesn't doesn't fit. But I mean, maybe maybe this is just what the X Men are going to be now, and maybe Jerry Duggan's trying to change what kind of a book it is. And maybe by the time he actually gets the changes done, perhaps I'll like it some more. But for right now, it does feel kind of out of place. But anyway, what what? It was sixteen issues between issue four and this one. All I needed was like you know every three or four issues, somebody having bad dreams, right? In an interesting way, then I could have been like, oh wow, they seeded it, right? It just really felt like out of nowhere to me. Yeah, that's that's a good point. If there's if anyone's gone back and said, hey, well, this one panel here and that other panel there. If you reread it in the light of the nightmare reveal, now it all makes sense. If that's there, that would be pretty cool, but I haven't seen anything like that. So what Nightmare's trying to do here, I think it's all just like for revenge on Gene and also, hey, screw you, X-Men, I'm a bad guy. He doesn't really seem to have a much of a goal beyond that, other than, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna put control bruised dreams, and I'm he's also controlling the dreams of the the brood drones as well. And making them want to go through gates and conquer all different places. Now, how can the brood go through gates? I think the idea is that they're, the refugees have brood on them, right? Yes. And then they would hatch on the ship, and then they would infest Cyclops and others. And then you'd have mutant brood, at which point they can go through the gates. Although, yes, I, I know in the scene we do not see that. We see... They look like plain old brood in the scene there. At least, again, this is not supposed to be literally what's happening. This is kind of describing his, uh, picturing the plan that Nightmare is talking about. And they are in a dream world, so I guess he can make it show up, look whatever he wants. But I would think that, again, this, this whole Gates accessibility issue has been a real problem for Krakoa all over the place. You would think that Krakoa is a pretty sophisticated, you know, being island mutant situation. You could set it. Hey, sure, yes, let mutants through the gate, but don't let the brood mutants through the gate. Uh, you'd think you could you could write that little program pretty quickly. Just like, I don't know, on uh, on the Enterprise, when they go through transporters, they filter out other biological you know, contamination type things. You, you would think that would be possible, but I guess that's not the story they're trying to tell here. Maybe when they got Rogue's DNA, they have the ability now to, maybe they have another mutant or something that can bring all these through as the guest. Maybe. But okay, so... 
yeah, just that the tone of it feels kind of weird. Perhaps when a couple issues down the road where we see where this is going, maybe it'll make more sense to me. But for right now, it, it feels kind of out of place. Moving on to our next segment, let's go off to Knowhere. So this is just a couple pages long. In fact, just two pages long, but confused the heck out of me. So if anyone out there can help deconfuse me, you know, write into us, Twitter, email, whatever, I would love to know what's happening. Because when last we saw Forge and Monet, they had just stepped through a gate from Krakoa onto nowhere, nowhere having previously fallen into a black hole. So the trip there being a, you know, a bit rough and timey-wimey and, you know, astral plane-ish even. So when they get to the other side, they see what look like their own bodies in the same spacesuits they were just wearing to travel through the gates. But those two bodies, they are nowhere already, are lying crumpled and unconscious. And this issue, I guess we jump forward a bit from their personal timeline, because now we see Forge and Monet tinkering with some science looking tech, trying to achieve some way of getting back to Krakoa. But it doesn't mention why they can't just go back through the gate in the other direction. Any idea what's going on there? No. No, this, okay. is the, <laughs> this is the part I'm most interested in in this issue. The, the brood story itself doesn't interest me, but, you know, being on nowhere in some other dimension does. But there's just a lot of questions like you had. Why can't you just go back through the gate? There's Why some reference there any to like people a body there swap. In, yeah. So, but like, when did that happen? I don't yeah. know. Let's give the quote here. Okay. So Monet's working. Uh, it turns out this, whatever they're doing is going to involve making a quote, baby black hole that I suppose will either get them back home to Ricola or maybe just kill them both, one or the other. So here, Monet, tinkering, 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 says to Forge, quote, well, you did get us back into our correct bodies on the second try, and I have no idea what she means by that. Had, had they swapped bodies with each other? It sure didn't seem like that in X-Men 19. It just seemed like, hey, what are these other bodies of ours doing here? Were those bodies on the floor? Were those, quote, our correct bodies? Maybe their consciousness got kicked out of their bodies when they went through the black hole and somehow they tried to get back into their bodies, but reversed it and then they had to flip my, it again. My best guess is there's some sort of a time loop here where whatever they do with the black hole is what knocked them out, but then they get sent back in time so they come through again. So I think we're in some kind of loop. That's my only guess, but it's it's not written clearly at all. It doesn't seem like intentional misleading. It just seems like I don't know what's happening. If it's more clear in the future that there is some time loop, then I'll be like, oh, that's cool. But okay. this just made no sense to me. And I still don't really understand why they're on this floating station other than just because. And I don't understand if, if this universe is supposed to be significant for some reason. Yeah, same. I don't know. Well, I don't. I didn't read the story where this head of nowhere ended up in this black hole, so I don't know why it's deserted. Maybe that was explained in the other story. It does look like at the end of this little two-page section, they do activate that baby black hole tech, and we don't know what happens yet. Presumably, we'll find out something about that in the next issue. Or if any one of you fine listeners can say, hey, you're probably screaming at your phone right now saying, hey, you dummies, it's obviously XYZ. And if you're doing that, you know, feel free to scream at your phone. I do that myself all the time, too. But if you want to write that down and send it to us, we, we will be your friend forever. So please, please feel free to do that. The floating head is cool, but uh, as far as my research <laughs> has led me to believe, like mm -hmm. the story involving this thing has sort of been wrapped, right? Like it was a celestial and Bill killed it and then Bill showed up and lost, right? So 
Yeah, I, don't know I mean, the, 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 head's been, the head's been floating around forever. It's been like a yeah. dead celestial head, basically acting like a planet or a space station for a long time. But more recently, it got sent through a black hole. So I don't, yes. I don't know that story. Yeah. I don't know why that's exciting or why you need it back. <laughs> I know it was a Guardians of the Galaxy base for a little bit. Why is Forge so excited to go here other than, hey, this is kind of cool. I could do this. Maybe it'll kill me, but I'm Forge and I'm a badass, so let's do it. Which, you know, matches his characterization, at least as we've seen it lately. But I would like to have seen some some more motivation for why this thing, why now? It's weird. It's like, I see a black hole. I just got to go through it. Okay. I guess so. Now, finally, we'll go back to Krakoa. And this is the last bit of the book. Takes up only three pages. But this is the part that I found the most intriguing. So first we see Emma doing some practice fighting with a woman I'm pretty sure is supposed to be Kitty Pride, although the character is not named, we never see her face. Uh, Emma says that the, the character is a woman I tried to recruit as a student, and that character says, hey, you remember I was trained as a ninja, and both those things seem to point to Kitty Pride to me. Uh, but I don't, think it, I don't think that matters. I think it's just there as a little, little nerd bait to make us figure out who it was. And, and I, I took the nerd bait because I'm a nerd. Uh, the important bit from this section is that two new residents have arrived on Krakoa, and these are Typhoid Mary and the Kingpin himself, Wilson Fisk. Now, I did not see this coming. I don't think anybody saw this coming because this is pretty wild. Now, Mary is canonically a mutant, although she hasn't often interacted with other mutants, hasn't been in a lot of X-books, although she was in an arc of X-Men in 2013 where her whole mutant nature was a pretty big deal. She's mostly been a daredevil antagonist, created by Anne Nascenti and John Romita Jr. in 1988, and she has multiple unstable personalities and some low-level mind stuff, right? Pyrokinesis, telekinesis, telepathy, but just just a little bit of each, just enough to be a, a pain in the ass to daredevil. Now, did you, did you read at all the Devil's Reign story that happened at the end, or at the end of the first section of Chip Jodarsky's Daredevil run? No, I'm working my way to it slowly. I've not arrived there yet. So the, the part, especially right before the part before Devil's Reign that Chip Jodarsky wrote is, was one of the best books in comics at the time. I really loved it. Jim loved it. It was almost like a Daredevil and Wilson Fisk book together. We really spent a lot of time with both of them, you know, looking at their characters and what they were doing, what they were trying to get at. And in that book, Wilson Fisk became mayor of New York City, and then some bad stuff happened, and he wasn't mayor anymore, and he and Mary had gotten married. That happened in the book, and they literally sail off into the sunset on this little teeny tiny sailboat, destination unknown. And that happened in the uh, Omega issue. Well, that happened in the last issue of Devil's Reign, in the Omega issue, Reed Richards says that, hey, we've, we've tracked them. He's been spotted in Lisbon spotted in Zagreb, and that Reed thought they would end up going to Latveria. And that was almost a year ago, you know, publication time. We haven't seen hide nor hair of him since, but I did not expect him to show up on Krakoa. Now, the idea that you can go to Krakoa as, you know, a spouse and take up residence, we have seen that before, at least just once, all I can think of, was North Star's husband, Kyle which must be the precedent that Fisk is citing here. So what do you think of Wilson Fisk, speaking of characters who don't seem to fit in with the X-Men, showing up on Krakoa? So he's a uh, wanted criminal everywhere, is that the idea? Yes. After being there. Yeah. I know that's sort of like not shocking, right? He was kingpin. I get it. But just wanted to, so he's on the run and everyone's looking for him. 
Correct. We have a, an arrest warrant shown here on the final, final page as a data page. It says he's wanted for the murder of Matt Murdock. He didn't actually kill Matt Murdock. He thinks he did. He killed Mike Murdock, who was Matt's... First, it was like as the alter ego that Matt pretended to be when he wanted to not be Matt. But then it kind of became created in magic, magic, magic. He became a, a real boy briefly. So everybody thinks that Matt Murdock is dead, but it really was brother Mike Murdock. But anyway, Fisk did kill a dude, and that's one of the things he's he's wanted. Yeah, that's interesting in the sense of, again, creating more strife with you know, the wider MCU, probably wanting extradition and other things. It does definitely connect X-Men to the wider Marvel world in an interesting way that doesn't always happen. And I was briefly reading that Emma and Kingpin have some kind of animosity at what's the basis for that. So, yeah, this has uh, shown up a couple places. It was, oh, I think this is only established recently, actually. I don't think historically they've been together, but in Marauders 22 and in the Devil's Reign X-Men tie-in miniseries, we see a history where Emma ended up working for or doing jobs for Fisk as kind of his pet psychic. You can imagine that if you're the kingpin, messing around with people's minds would be an awful useful thing. So she's done some work with him. They don't get along. And I looked up those issues to remind me, and they were all written by Jerry Duggan. So that kind of makes sense that it feels like, uh, okay, well, Chip Zdarsky's not using Wilson Fisk anymore. Jerry Duggan must have put in dibs and say, hey, I'll, I'll take him over here in my book because I've been writing him a little bit. So clearly, Fisk is a character he has some affinity for. I, I hope he has some interesting plans. Why does Emma want revenge on him? Uh, he's Well, he had, he had control over her, had like some dirt on her for a while, and made her do stuff she didn't want to do, which Emma is not the kind of person who wants to be put in that position. So yeah, he is he's a, a force to be reckoned with, right? He's Wilson Fisk, but he's on an island full of mutants. So I don't know how he's going to act here. I don't know. He doesn't really have any power in the situation. Is he going to win over some people? He's going to use his his powers of persuasion to cause problems. Is he going to you know swap suit jackets with uh oh just well, who's uh shoot Jim you're going to have to edit this who's the who's the the bad guy uh who was in New Mutants for a while messing around with the kids big bad psychic guy Shadow King okay so what's for- Try that again. So what's what's Fizz going to do on Krakoa? Is he going to like swap suit jackets with a Shadow King? Because I think they probably go to the same tailor. Uh, other than that, he's just, you know, a, a big strong dude on an island full of people with giant magical cosmic powers. So I'm not sure what he could pull off. Yeah. I hope he's not um, portrayed as like a physical antagonist to the X-Men the way they did with Kraven. Mm-hmm. Because I, I just didn't buy it then and I'm going to buy it even less with a kingpin. But if he's, you know, manipulative and then also creating some sort of political turmoil for Krakoa, then I will be interested. Yeah, he shouldn't be a physical threat except to, I mean, he could be a physical threat to some, you know, there's a lot of mutants there without really strong powers. They're just mutants. But you also have all these really strong mutants there looking out for them. So he shouldn't be able to actually get away with much. And also, a lot of his strength is his ties to politicians and gangsters and organized crime. And right now, he seems to be completely cut off from all that. And even if he weren't cut off from all that, those kind of people can't really operate on Krakoa because it's just its own separate country. So very curious to see where this is going to go. So yeah, overall, 
Uh, this was a pretty interesting issue. I I like the idea of having all these storylines bubbling along. It feels very Chris Claremont, right? You've got your Brood storyline. You've got your Forge and Monet storyline. You've got Fisk showing up. All these different plates spinning. The individual plates, I'm not crazy about. None of them are awful, but none of them are really amazing to me either. So I gave the last issue a seven, and I think I like this issue a little more than I like that one. At least for the Fisk reveal, I, I like the that gives me some hope something cool is going to happen. So I'm going to give X Men number twenty a seven point three out of ten. Yeah, I don't care about a lot of these plot points, but I'm more excited about it after having talked to you. So you can put me in for say six eight. Six point eight. Okay, yeah, it's again. I we haven't been crazy about X Men, but it does feel like there are some things going on that may become. Pretty cool in the future. Oh, and speaking of the future, Ruben, why don't we head off into the Sun, the Sins of Sinister storyline? That's a lot of S's. A hundred years into that future, and check out Nightcrawler's number two, also known as Sins of Sinister Part Five: The Apostate. Now, do you is that a an SAT word you're familiar with? An apostate? I've never heard that word. Ah, it's it's used as a pejorative. It means a person who used to be part of your religion, but then like publicly renounced that religion. So like in Islam, if you're a Muslim and then give up being a Muslim, they'll call you an apostate. I think I'm pronouncing it correctly. I've only seen it in print. And then you're like persona non grata. I feel like if you want to leave the Amish and you know, then once you're out, you're out, that kind of thing. So it's someone who had been a believing member, but isn't anymore. And we'll see by the end of this issue specifically what character that title refers to. Okay. Uh, on with the credits. It is written by Cy Spurrier, soon to be the new writer on DC's Flash, which I know Jim is particularly very excited about. Uh, the art is by Andrea DeVito, who will be the artist on all three of these Year 100 books. The colors are by Jim Carolampides, I'm going to go with. Uh, and letters by Clayton Cowles, designed by Tom Muller, with Jay Bowen. Now, Ruben, you were called out today in the Slack chat. It was vicious. We have, uh, so as, as you listeners probably know, we do have a, a Slack channel where if you're part of the Weird Science Patreon, and why wouldn't you be, uh, you can hang out there and, you know, chat about comics, chat about whatever nonsense you want to chat about. Uh, you want to call out any of us podcast hosts publicly, like Matt Razor did. He said just this very, very morning as we record, quote, have fun reviewing and talking about that Nightcrawler's book. Cy Spurrier is the worst. Again, this is Matt Razor talking. Just total nonsense words strung together. But I'm sure you two will love it, especially Ruben. Okay, Ruben, defend yourself. Cy Spurrier is not Tom King. I feel like <laughs> I feel like something's been happening in the Slack that I can't be a part of. There's some negativity there lately, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You guys are all sheep. That's what it is. That's oh, what I'm going to say. Cracking back. Yeah. So Jim doesn't like size superior. Too many words. Jim can't read. He's illiterate. And now everybody is telling me size superior is terrible. And I don't buy it. I don't buy that for one second. Very up or down. And it's fine if you guys don't like him. That's fine. But uh, he's not He's not a terrible writer. I'm, hmm. I'm getting offended by that. His dialogue is readable. And he's trying big ideas. Some of his books suck. I agree. Uh, I don't think this is one of them that sucks. And 
you know, people are saying, oh, he's just throwing, you know, anything out there because this doesn't matter. I mean, this is just like injustice, right? Like, this is an alt-universe. Yes, weird things are going to happen. Do you really want an alt-universe where nothing happens? I mean, that's sort of insane to me. So I look at it, I read it. This is, you know, far in the future. There's some weird stuff going on, yes, but that's what I want from one of these books, right? I want to be challenged with interesting ideas and, you know, I want a future that looks futuristic. So I'm having fun with it still. Okay, that sounds good. Yeah, I, I think there's just a certain tone that's set in just like to, to the group of people who chat there because there's a lot of writer changes and artist changes too, but mostly people talk about the writers announced recently and people are, are really down about a lot of them. I mean, a lot of us love what Jeremy Adams has been doing in The Flash and to have anybody come in and replace somebody who's been the, kind of your favorite. You know, I, I've been a substitute teacher and I was made a long-term sub for a really, really popular physics teacher once. And boy, that was a rough spot to be in because I was not, I was not Mr. Golis. Everyone loved Mr. Golis. Mr. Golis got called up to the Army Reserves and taken away from them. And then they sent me in in his place. And I was not him. So I'm going to give, we're going to have Sizeberry a chance. I, I don't know what he's going to do there. They, I mean, who knows? Marvel PR talks about it being a cosmic horror book, which doesn't sound awful in the abstract, but compared with, you know, the family book we've been getting in Flash so far, I would kind of rather have the family. But it's kind of not Cy Spurrier's fault that Jeremy Adams got taken off. So I'm going to at least give it, going to give it a shot. And I would certainly hope that Cy Spurrier is not going to write the Flash the way he's writing this crazy throw everything at the wall because most of it is going to get wiped away anyway, Sins of Sinister event. It's a very different kind of book. If he tries to write it the same way, then I'll say, hey, this is a piece of crap. But I'm not going to say that until it happens. A few, this is not a Flash podcast, but two comments on that. Um, I have read weird Flash stories that I liked. So I think I went on record saying that I like Graham Morrison's Flash run. I don't think weird is necessarily bad as long as you're breaking to, like toys, right? In the toy box. And I, I haven't seen Psy, like, you know, horribly ruin characters for, like, 20 years to come. So don't expect him to kill off, like, you know, Jai and, uh, was it Chase, the the kids, or break up the marriage or some nonsense like that, right? Like, mm -hmm. I would get, if that was the case, why you'd be so furious about him taking over. And I get the idea, like, hey, you know, you're actually enjoying what's being written. It sucks that you're going away from it. So touche on that, right? But again, that's not the writer's fault. Maybe maybe what they needed to do was just give him a like separate flash title and let the other one continue, but it must not have been selling, right? I now, suppose not. From the economics perspective, this one I do agree with Jim, right? Like, why would you bring in size for to like resuscitate your your failing like marquee character line? That makes no sense to me. I love Cy, right? But I'm not going to be out there saying like he's selling issues. So, uh, you know, it's a it's a acquired taste, I suppose. So that that's enough flash talk. Uh, we don't want our, our podcast to become soccer, CPAP, and The Flash. That would be just, no one wants to listen to that. Uh, we're going to go back to Sins of Sinister here. I gave the credits for Nightcrawlers number two. So when we left off in Sinister Era year 10, Mother Righteous's herald, Vox Ignis, had just discovered, kind of by accident, that his Scream of Change, which is a very size barrier thing to happen, has the power to free some of Sinister's chimeras from that whole Sinister personality. They keep their abilities, but they're no longer, you know, doing the nasty things that he's making them do. 
This power only works on chimeras having a nightcrawler component, and even then, not all of them. We're specific, very specifically shown some of them were not able to be freed. It kind of seemed to only work on nightcrawlers where the other part was a hero. Not clear. I, again, Sizebearer isn't always, he's not there for clarity. He's there for, here's, try this weird thing on for size. Now, Mother Righteous put these freed nightcrawlers to work. You know, they had been working for Sinister for the diamond. Now they're working for her, the heart. And what she wants them to do is collect all the high-powered magical items they can find. And she's going to create what she calls the Reliquary Perilous. Now, Reliquary is another religious kind of a word. A reliquary is what you keep a relic in. So like uh, a church might have a relic of a saint, whether it's part of clothing, part of a finger bone, those are our relics. And you want to store that in a particular, like usually in an ornate you know, container to display, that's a reliquary. So this reliquary is going to be holding on to all these different magical artifacts. And she says that this, this reliquary perilous will be able to, quote, purge the sinister strain from the heart of every mutant. So that's what they're doing. Now, meanwhile, the Sinisterized Quiet Council had taken full control of Earth and had started to worry about attacks from other places in the galaxy. Hey, maybe the Shi'ar are going to mess with us, maybe the Kree. Let's worry about those. So now we've jumped 90 years later to year 100. Yeah, space is no longer a problem, right? They've, they've taken care of pretty much everything. They have no challenge anywhere in the galaxy as far as we can tell. Mother Righteous has collected more magical items and more nightcrawlers, but doesn't seem to be all that close to completing her reliquary. I think the metaphor here is supposed to be like a religious leader who preaches a certain kind of a gospel, but is really in it for their own purposes. I think what that is, what she's getting at. Yeah, it's again, it's it's a size barrier thing to be talking about religion and spirituality and meaning and purpose. And kind of gesturing towards it in kind of a kind of a vague way, but like, hey, get get that what's going on over there. I'm getting the sense that she might have zero purpose other than just she needs to be idolized, worshipped, and applauded. And so she has this like infinite quest to find all the magic relics with no real purpose behind it. I, I think she does have a purpose. To to jump ahead a little bit, she says later on that she needs to get this relic. First, she needs to keep building the reliquary. And then she says she needs to take it inside Sinister's lab, which is that that black sphere that's protected by Unus the Untouchable kind of genes. That's the one that got stolen is now, head, as far as we know, is still hanging out in, oh, the something of worlds? Where is it that, uh, anyway, someplace real far away where it got stolen. And I think she wants to get in there. There's There's two things in there that she could possibly use, right? There's the Moira's kill off a Moira, reset the timeline, but I don't think she wants to do that because I think she likes this timeline. She just wants to be the winner of this timeline. The other thing in that lab that we know about is that magic reset button, not, not the reset button, but the button that kind of kills off all the sinisterized chimera, or I don't know if it kills them off or just takes off the whole sinister. I, I think it kills them off is what Mr. Sinister said in Immoral Number One. So I think that's what she wants to get to, and then that would let her win over the diamonds, right? Kill off all the diamonds. She's the heart. Maybe she can get to Dominion status, and she can win. I think all the Sinisters want to be the Dominion. I think that's, that's the basic cool. competition. I forgot about the suicide button, so that's kind of neat. 
I, I think that's what it is. But yeah, that's, that's jumping ahead a bit. So here we are in year 100. We've got, we get kind of a, the first few pages are just pedal to the metal. Let's fill in 90 years worth of history. Crazy stuff. So we see like, for instance, Xavier attacking the Shi'ar with hybrid brains made from the Shadow King and Somnus, who's a, Somnus is basically Nightmare as a mutant, actually. He's a, a character, uh, Steve Orlando character from, uh, the current run of Marauders, I think. So, and when that happens, we see the Nightkin, they show up. They, they don't show up to these places to help, right? All these places are about to be killed by the diamonds. The Nightkin show up at the last second, not to help out, just to steal their stuff, just to scavenge, yeah. right? Yeah. Which is, it's kind of cool. I mean, it's, it's awful, but it makes sense in context of the story. So here, Nightkin grabs an armload of, I'm going to say, Macron crystals. We saw them recently in Fantastic Four. Yeah, your basic super-powered time and space kind of crystals. Uh, and then we see the first triple chimera, which we know is, you know, that was why Doc, or Mr. Sinister got to stay alive, because he could make triple chimeras. Uh, one of them conquers Otherworld, kills Doctor Strange in the process, and that's when the knight can get the Eye of Agamotto and probably some other cool stuff too. And finally in this prelude, Asgard falls... Again, right? It had already been kicked into the middle of nowhere by magic and Sins of Sinister number one. But now, uh, Wagnerine, who's our main character pretty much, a Laura Kinney based Nightkin, also the narrator, she shows up right before the, the, the diamonds show up and steals Mjolnir by cutting off Thor's hand of the forearm. Now, they, you can't pick up Mjolnir unless you're worthy. So clearly these, these, uh, night crawlers are not worthy in that sense, but they have a lost slash nightcrawler chimera. She has gravity powers and she can manipulate gravity to make Mjolnir fall whatever direction she wants. So it's kind of a pretty clever way around the whole, I can't pick it up. I can just make it fall whatever direction I want it to fall. I thought that was kind of cool. Again, this is super quickly done and I can see why if you're just not into this style of writing, it could give you a headache real quick. If you're trying to make it make perfect sense rather than saying, wow, that's a cool thing that we're never going to have to think about it again. If you try to think too hard about it and try to fit it in logically, you're going to, you're going to need some aspirin. For me, this works because I see this as like, wow, again, the, the diamonds are doing really well, right? They're really kicking butt everywhere. And this really is a galactic threat versus it, it just doesn't feel small to me the way that it's handled. And that's one of these things for these sort of quick cosmic crisis things that sometimes irked me if it's like all just happening in New York. It's like, okay, well, how cosmic and massive is it really? But it works for me to think like this is really, you know, the whole entire Marvel universe being taken over by these diamonds. I agree. Clearly, the writers of Sins of Sinister got together and really worked through this whole going to be a thousand year history of this timeline, right? That this isn't just Cy Spurrier making stuff up on his own. This has to be fit into the larger narrative. And and I, I think it's 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 well done. I wouldn't want to keep reading a book written like this, but we know we've only got a few issues. We only have three issues in each of these time periods. So I I'm glad to know what happened in the past 90 years, even if it takes some pretty crazy storytelling to get that across. And for me, this is better than, you know, each of these things being its own little spin-off. Like I would have I didn't need like Sins of Sinister Asgard, right? The issue and Sins oh, of God, Sinister, yes. you know, I don't know whatever mm -hmm. other world. <laughs> oh, yeah, we don't need 
don't need a, a six issue tie in miniseries in Otherworld. No, no, we don't. Right. So like two pages and just showing what happens is cool. And I, yeah. I also appreciate that a lot of it is the art selling the stories, right? Like, absolutely. You know, you see Doctor Strange, his corpse, right? And you see these artifacts and you kind of like speculate what they are. That I think is awesome. Like, you don't have like, oh, now we kill Doctor Strange, right? In, in the text. So those are things I appreciate. It feels like it's really hitting all these areas of the MCU, but respecting you enough to like research it or not, right? To the extent that you care. To find out. Yeah. So the artist Andrea DeVito is doing looks a little bit different than what Paco Medina gave us in year 10, but it looks fantastic. And again, the storytelling, especially in this compressed section where we only, she, he only gets like two panels to tell each story, sometimes only one panel. And he gets enough into those panels without making them look crowded or hard to read that really gets the story across in it. A super efficient, super effective way, and I love that. And it tells us enough to let us know what's going on, but it leaves enough blank where we don't need an Asgard miniseries, but we can write in our heads all sorts of crazy stuff that must have happened, right? I like having those openings for my imagination to just, you know, play around with when I'm, you know, reading the book or hours later when I'm just kind of thinking back on it. And it's also got one other thing that I really struck me was, you know. To everyone else, the original Sinister is the big bad, right? So you even see like some art with him, you know, the rumors of him being at the Shi'ar fall mm -hmm. and he's a shadowy figure. But, you know, we just saw in the Immortal X-Men issue, he's from his own perspective, he's a slave, right? He's not really the threat of this universe. So it's kind of interesting that, you know, his persona has become sort of legendary and myth. And you're like, you know, oh, we heard that he was there you know, at this location and that location, but he kind of doesn't matter really. Yeah. Everyone thinks he's the the big winner, but he's kind of, he considers himself one of the big losers. Although we don't know what he's done in the past 90 years. We only get a silhouette presumably of him in one panel in this issue. And next week we get Immoral X-Men where I presume we're going to find out what he's been up to for 90 years. Okay. So there's if we got into every panel of every little minor storyline in this issue, we could be here for hours and hours. So I, I'm going to try to resist that. So big pictures. Mother Mother Righteous continues to be uh, kind of, just kind of sketchy, right? We, we, there have been, we have all these items taken to the Narthex, which is Nightcrawler's old house now made into a spaceship powered by Chamber Chimera. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm getting into the details too much again. There's a lot of, a ton of cool details here. Just, just read it. It's, it's cool stuff. Uh, there are only 53 Nightcrawlers still left. They've been recruiting Nightcrawlers, but they tend to die off either in battle or other reasons. And they haven't recruited any new ones for, for two years. A lot of the existing ones are getting old. So it's kind of like, again, it almost feels like if you talk about, you know, in the Catholic Church, priests and nuns, their population is getting smaller and older too. So that feels kind of like a nod to that. Now, there've been some major doings among the Nightcrawlers. Uh, in an event Reminiscent of the birth of Hope following M-Day, there's been a baby born to Nightcrawler Wagnerine, which is a big deal because the Chimera were intentionally made infertile when they were you know, designed by Mr. Sinister. It's only Wagnerine's healing factor and healing skills that allowed her to overcome this. Oh, and the father of that baby is Summer Knight, a Cyclops Nightcrawler Chimera. So... In a manner of speaking, Nightcrawler, Cyclops, and Wolverine all have a baby together, which makes some quarters of the internet maybe a little too excited. But, you know, I guess, hey, you shippers out there, you get your fan service too. Enjoy it. 
Uh, the birth didn't work out so well. We're told, at least up front, that as soon as the baby was born, some kind of, quote, birth reflex just caused it to immediately bamf out into God knows where. Is it lost? Is it dead? Nobody knows. And Daddy Subernight is so emotionally torn up by all this that he is about to revert to kind of his his sinister form right before he got freed from that curse. We learned last issue that this happens eventually to all the Nightcrawler Chimera. They become back in their sinister kind of personality, and that this can be accelerated if they you know have too much, as they say, emotional damage. So just like the Spider-Man Chimera last time, Shadow Knight is sent to bamf and splat against that still impenetrable lab protected by the Unisphere. And at this point, there are just corpses just all around it. Really, really gross, but really kind of cool looking. Except we learn later on, and this is the big reveal, that that baby Nightcrawler Chimera Chimera hybrid, I don't even know what you'd call it, was not actually lost, but was stolen, hidden away as part of the Reliquary Perilous by Mother Righteous. So this connects not only to the birth of hope thematically, but also to when Mr. Sinister arranged the birth of Cable and then stole that baby away for his own purposes. And we learn that Wagnerine, the baby's mother, eventually finds out about this deception. So, so Ruben, what did you think about baby nightcrawler Cyclops Wolverine kid. Um, everything you just summarized was going through my mind. And I was like, oh, that's cool because it's very much kind of tracking with, you know, old X lore. Yeah. And, and Spurrier never hits us over the head with it, right? He never says, hey, it's just like this or it's just like that. It just kind of presented. And those resonances you, you pick up on as a reader, if you're familiar with those, and if you're not familiar with those stories, then it's just kind of a cool story on its own. Uh, Mother Righteous has all these items. She's starting to run out of Nightcrawlers, but she, yeah, she's she's trying to, I think, get into that lab to 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 push the button to to have a, a big victory over the diamonds. We learned that Legion is still out there somewhere, but not taking an active role. He's kind of sick of all this crap. Uh, he doesn't want any of the Sinisters to win. He even says that he and his people who's left of them are going to decamp for the, quote, higher planes and not involve himself with any of this nonsense anymore. But he still exists, and he's the kind of powerful character who might be part of whatever the big reset winds up being. Maybe that'll pop up next time. We see Earth. Earth has been conquered by a brood slash annihilus incursion, but the planet was pretty much environmentally ruined anyway by the Sinisters, and those Sinisters had mostly abandoned the planet and gone to other places, so no big loss to them. We do see Wagnerine pop down to the old mansion, which we've visited a couple times in a couple different books, and uh, she brings Dr. Nemesis, who's now more mushroom than man, and also the original super, super monsterized Nightcrawler back aboard the Narthex. And this is a, a big turning point for her as a character. She has lost faith in Mother Righteous. She is the apostate of the title. And she explains things to Nightcrawler, the, the big monster one, and Nightcrawler attacks Mother Righteous. Does this work out well? It does not. Mother Righteous pulls out a sword. I think this must be that hope sword that Margali made in Legion number 10, and she uses that to murder Nightcrawler to death. So the attempted uprising ends very quickly. Now, we found, we know that Margali's curse is over, so if they are able to resurrect Kurt, he would be back to his old self. But we have no idea 
how resurrections work at all these days or who could do it other than, you know, people who are already Mr. Sinisters. So Mother Righteous orders Vox Ignis or Harold to kill Wagnery and the apostate, but he's at least briefly not so sure himself about where his allegiance should lie. He hesitates for just a second, and that's long enough for Wagnerine to bamf the heck out of there and go back to that mansion on Earth. And she kind of hopes that her example has at least put questions in the minds of all the other Nightcrawlers. And we have 900 more years to see that play out before we go back and check base, base with this title again. So yeah, that's... That's the story. And again, there's tons of cool little touches, brief mentions of nifty things. If people want to dive deep on any given panel, it's just jam packed full of cool stuff, which again, if you're not into it, can just be, can just be too much. I get that. I do think that the characterization of Mother Righteous isn't quite as profound as Sparrier thinks it is. And his idea of the spark is kind of starting to come across as just some hand waving, hippy dippy nonsense. That's fair. I heard another review, I think it was the the comic book Herald guy, say that Immoral X-Men and Storm and the Brotherhood feel like the main books of this event, and Nightcrawlers kind of feels like a tie-in series. And I I see where he's coming from, but as a tie-in series, I think it's a super high-quality tie-in series, and I'm I'm happy to read every page of this book, and I'm happy to dive into all these details, because that's the kind of X-Men nerd I've become somehow. So, yeah, uh, we've, I've already gushed about the art and how, how well it tells the story. Uh, I'm just going to stop talking and say, yeah, I like this. like this a lot. I'm going to give it an 8.5 out of 10. Thank goodness. <laughs> That's where I'm at. <laughs> oh, thank goodness I'm going to stop talking because I, I still feel uh, slighted by Matt. <laughs> and I was like, this is going to be a miserable episode if you just come on and tell me how crappy this history was. I now introduce our guest, Matt Razor, on the other line. No, he's he's not actually doing that. But hey, Matt, if you didn't like the book, we, we get it. I understand why someone might not like this, but I hope maybe you understand why some of us do. And now we have this cool, like, we know year 100 of the Earth is kind of a brood hellscape, right? That's an interesting environment. So I'm curious to see other people, either did they stay or like, are they out in space and thinking about returning? Yeah, because next week we're going to See what uh, we're gonna get. Uh, see what yeah. See what uh, Mister Sinister is up to, presumably. And then after that, we'll see what's going on with Storm and the Brotherhood, who had you know been tricked by Mother Righteous into kind of doing her bidding. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, well, anyway, I, I guess that's all we have to say about Nightcrawler's number two. Anything else you want to add? Okay, so looking ahead to next week, we have three issues coming up. We have Bishop War College number two, and I don't think we're going to go into super detail on that unless it turns out to be an amazing book. Uh, We'll cover it briefly. I'll at least let listeners know any major events that transpire and may get kind of like the dark web treatment. Here's what happened. Here's what you need to know. And I'll let you know what I think of it. Uh, But the major books next week are Wolverine number 31, where, hey, Logan just killed Beast last issue, murdered his boss. How's that all going to play out? And then Immoral X-Men number two, where, hey, is Mr. Sinister still looking for his missing Moras nine decades later? What is that old son of a gun up to? And that's what we're going to talk about. But until then, Ruben, uh, while I go and hook my face up to a breathing machine again, and, and you go off to watch some people slowly kick a ball back and forth to each other, 
what do we say at the end of each and every Weird Dose of X podcast? Right, go read more X-Men comics. Bye-bye. <laughs>